This is the Small Moves Podcast with your host, Jason Hertzberger, episode 56. Everybody's always complaining that they're not happy and they don't know how to get happy. Guys, it's super, super simple. All you have to do is, well, all you, you know what? I don't have a damn clue, but let's find out together. You're listening to the Small Moves Podcast. Small steps for big progress. With your host, Jason Hertzberger. Your next step starts now. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of the show this week. I'm really glad that you're here. Today, I'm really excited to get this episode out. Today's interview is with Jackie Latran. Jackie is an author and a personal happiness coach and mentor for both young adults as well as adults. She works with people that are struggling to find happiness in their life because of past uh, traumas or significant emotional events as she chooses to describe them. This conversation was really interesting. She's got one heck of a background. She immigrated to the U.S. from Vietnam not terribly long after the Vietnam War, which wasn't exactly the easiest time in the world for uh, people of that particular nationality to join this wonderful country here in the U.S. And uh, she talks a little bit about that background, uh, what she went through with her and her family to get here, the sat, the unfortunate situation that happened to some of the people that were in the same group in the, in the midst of that um, move herself when leaving Vietnam to try and make her way out here to the West. Um, it's a pretty, it's a pretty compelling story. I'd really hope that you'll stick around to listen to it. This conversation with Jackie was really great. I enjoyed it a lot and I really learned a lot about the process of trying to figure out what it is that people can do to actually figure out what happiness means to them. We have a tendency to focus a lot on the externalities of our life and that of others to try and figure out what might make us happy when that doesn't necessarily end up usually doing the trick. Jackie gives us a lot of pointers on how to figure that out in the right way. That said, I don't want to give too much of it away. I want to leave it for the interview. So that being said, I'm looking forward to this one. Hope you do as well. I bring you Jackie Latran. Here we go. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire, and you're listening to the Small Moves Podcast, small steps for big progress. Let's prepare to ignite. Jackie, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me today. No problem. Now, the the guests of the show or the the audience in the show got a little bit of a snapshot of your background uh, during the intro a minute ago, but obviously you know yourself and your background a little bit better than we know you. So why don't you just kind of give us a little bit of a snapshot of sort of who are you? What do you do? Tell you know, tell the audience a little bit about you. Sure. So my name is Jackie Latran. I am a nurse practitioner, a mindset mentor, an author, a speaker, and a podcaster. Whew, that's a lot in there, isn't it? <laughs> so, um, so, not, I, so not much going on. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> now, the uh, you, you you mentioned you're a nurse practitioner. That um, when I looked in when I was reading about your background when you and I first connected, that's the one part that I didn't get. Like what what do you do there? Or do you still, are you still practicing as a nurse practitioner? No, I actually escaped about seven years ago. Ah. I started being a nurse practitioner at 23 years old. Okay. Uh, started my journey really, really early. Loved what I did until I didn't anymore. Hmm. And the reason I stopped loving nurse practitioner is because I start noticing a trend I didn't like. I start seeing the same patients over and over and over again for anti-anxiety medication and depression medication. Hmm. And I got into medicine to help people. And here I am. I feel like, you know, I'm part of the system that is holding these people back because I would hear things from them like, well, if I didn't have anxiety or if I didn't have depression, I could do this, that or the other thing. Or they would say, which broke my heart, Jackie told me I had depression, therefore I can't. Uh And yes, it broke my heart. I felt so responsible because, you know, my goal was to help. And I feel like I'm almost giving them a sentence, you Mm -hmm. know. You have depression. This is what you need to be. You need to be on this medication for X amount of time. 
And so I got really discouraged. So I started looking for alternative ways to help my patients and discover holistic options that when I first learned about them, I'm like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Hypnotherapy for crazy people, sure. EFT, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's too much of a woo-woo thing for me. Sure. And I kind of push it aside, but I was curious. So I kept going back and then I experienced it as a client and fell madly in love with it, went to all the training I could, mm -hmm. gave up my medical practices and started my holistic practice about seven, eight years ago. Now, do you, are you, do you still actively see patients now or have you transitioned more to the direct, direct mentoring or coaching and obviously now, now podcasting? By the way, everyone, Jackie's a podcaster. That's how her and I know each other. <laughs> <laughs> and podcasters are freaking awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, no, I, I stopped practicing when I discover, um, you know, all these different holistic options. It just didn't align. Those two for me didn't fully align. Sure. And so I decided to give up what I went to school for to do what I truly love and am so passionate about. And I haven't looked back and I love every single moment. Now, do you, do you work with patients like hands-on? Do you work with patients locally with what you do now? Or do you work pretty much remotely with clients that are anywhere like obviously i know you ha you you've written several books that we'll get into in a little bit obviously that that has its own reach that's outside of your own community you know you have well, like you have online or group mentoring that i noticed on your website obviously that has a further a further reach um do do you do much one-on-one -on -one local working with people that where you are down in nashville or is pretty much everything that you do based online or remote so when I pra when I started my practice uh, many years ago, it was mm -hmm. all one on one in person. Sure. And I was living in the state of California at the time. About a year and a half ago, I moved to Asheville. Okay. And during that move, I had to make some decisions. I have to decide: okay, do I shut down this business and restart over in Asheville? Mm -hmm. And that was the direction I thought I was going to go. But then my husband says, "Well, just bring your business online." And I'm like, "Duh, Duh. <laughs> bring my business online." <laughs> So I was a bit hesitant at first because I thought at that time that you really need that face-to-face -face in person for mm -hmm. these methods to be highly effective. Um, but, you know, I took the leap. I went online and the effectiveness is exactly the same. I mean, I was really, really surprised and blown away that, you know, I'm getting the exact same types of results I'm getting virtually. And now I can see people everywhere. In fact, this morning I was in a consultation for someone in Ireland. I mean, how cool is that? I can work wherever I am and see people wherever they are. Mm -hmm. It really, it really is. Once you start doing business of any sort of business, no matter what it is that you're doing, but once you start doing stuff online, it really is amazing to see the, the geographic, the lack, I should say of geographic boundaries. Like what I, I mentioned, I mentioned on an interview recently when I was talking to somebody else who was also a podcaster. Once I kind of got over the fear of, Oh my God, no one's listening. Oh my God, no one's listening. Oh my God, no one's listening. And I just sort of ignored my numbers. I, I ignored my download numbers for like maybe the first month of launching my show. It took, it took about a month for me to kind of get up the bravery to start looking at the download numbers again. Cause I'm like, it's going to be zero. It's going to be zero. Maybe, ah! maybe two or th <laughs> maybe two or three a week with my wife and my in-laws, but that's about it. <laughs> and, but after that amount of time, once I started looking, it's like, you have this many downloads from this many dozen countries is like, like you've got, like you have active listeners, multiple active listeners in 14 countries. And as the months were going by in 17 countries, in 23 countries, in 42 countries, I'm like, Oh my God, like who the hell, like who the hell do I, like who the hell do I know in Poland? Like who the hell do I know in Japan? Like I don't know anyone in Japan, but you know, Japan's my third biggest download country, you know, wow. in Japan. I'm like, <laughs> I had no earth like I know no one in Japan. I know no one that's that currently lives there. I know no one that spent any active amount of time there. I have no earthly idea what's happening over there in Japan, but apparently someone loves me over there. You know, <laughs> but it's just it's where is it? it's it really is amazing to see that geographic reach because it re and it really opens your eyes too. It's like what how many in how many people you can impact, how many different types of people you can impact. And really, I'm sure with your business, you start to see a lot of commonalities outside of 
your local culture. It's like, Hey, like not, not to, not with the, with the patients that you obviously have or with the clients that you have, your, your business is pretty niche with regards to the type of people that you like to work with. I'm sure it's both inspiring and maybe a little depressing to say, Hey, look, people are screwed up everywhere. It's like, it's like like people are screwed up in countries outside of the United States. It's almost a little reassuring. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't use that term. I don't see people as being screwed up. You know, I just, I just see people (laughs) needing to remember who they are and how to access their inner truth. Sure. Sure. Now the, um, when you, you you've written you've written several books right now. It's three, it's three books, right? I have three one. books out. Yes. When when did you write your first book? My first book and second book was written about the same time, and that was in 2015. I mm-hmm. launched it on Super Bowl Sunday. How did that go? Actually, amazing. So oh, really? Okay. <laughs> I I. I, I don't do sports. I don't follow sports. And I just picked a random date because for me, if I have a date, then I'm, I have something to work towards. And I announced it to all my, you know, Facebook and all my social media. So now I'm accountable for launching it. Mm-hmm. And then I think maybe like four weeks before I'm like, Oh, it's Super Bowl, oh, Sunday. Crap, it's Super Bowl <laughs> Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. I'm... So, so it's fun though, because we made it about, you know, um, you support sports and let's support teenagers and let's help them, you know, discover this message and understand how to use their mind. So it worked out really well. Yeah. Now your, 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 your work seems to be primarily focused on like teenagers and young adults. Obviously it, those principles can be sort of spread to different age brackets, of course, but it seems like a, the, the tone of your work seems to be angled towards more teens and young adults. Why, why is that? Like I've been, I was, I was reading a little bit about your background and obviously, you know, I saw that based on the current modern Western U S standards, the worst possible thing that could ever happen to a young person happened to you when you were 16, which is apparently the end of life as we know it. If you ask any modern American (laughs) parent, but clearly Things haven't turned out too badly. So, what, what uh, can you can you tell us a little bit about that experience and sort of how that impacted the work that you're doing now? Sure. There's actually two points I can enter the story, and I'm going to take us back to the further um, point okay. because that I think is really the bigger uh, catalyst for what I do. Okay. Um, when I was 16, and this is too, uh, this is definitely TMI. <laughs> <laughs> So it's okay. Was... It's okay. Nobody's listening. <laughs> <laughs> people are listening. Lots of people are listening. So when I was 16, um, I went to a local Planned Parenthood to get on birth control. Okay. And I was terrified. I mean, like I walked in, I felt scared. I felt judged. I walked right out. Mm-hmm. I did that three times because I knew I did not want to get pregnant. I, I'm, I was sexually active, did not want to get pregnant, but I was so terrified. And mm-hmm. I'm going to totally date myself here now. Back then, in order to get birth control, you have to get a pap smear first. Luckily, we don't have to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. So I was terrified of that. Third time I came in, I'm like, okay, I'm more terrified of getting pregnant. So I'm going to stay. So I'm in the room. I'm in my, you know, stirrup um, and completely naked, bottom down with a sheet covering me. The doctor walks in, picked up the chart, and he took the chart, looked at it, slapped my ass with it, and said, get dressed. You don't need birth control. You're pregnant. Oh, oh, exactly right. Or oh in my case, my God. In my case, it was ah, right. <laughs> I lost it. I mean, oh like, I, I, I held in so much fear, and then to hear those words, I mean, it was just incredible. And I don't remember the rest of the day. I, I I'm sure I got. Imagine. <laughs> sure. I'm sure I got dressed somehow. I'm sure I got home somehow. I don't remember. <laughs> But um, a month and a date before I turned 17, I gave birth to my son. Okay. And that was the catalyst for everything to be changed in my life. Up until that point, I was dealing with a lot of anxiety and depression. And before I had my son, I actually thought about ending my life because I just couldn't handle it anymore. And then I got pregnant and, you know, I thought I was a screw up before, but after getting pregnant, I was pretty certain there's 
there's like you know this big old belly as yeah. my proof of like how back, much of a back to, back to the stereotype I was talking before. It's like it's like you're a pregnant. It's like you're a pregnant. You're a single pregnant sixteen year old. It's like everywhere you look is saying that you're terrible, that you're a failure, that you're a wasted life, that you're a that 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 you like fill in the blank. Yes, yeah. yes. So, and you know, like, yeah. and the way that the doctor told me I was pregnant, that was definitely medical abuse. Um, I was going to say that, that, was, that, that was, that was very, that was a really smooth move on his part. Good, <laughs> good God. Right. And and it <laughs> did not, it did not end when I was giving birth, yelling and screaming because it hurts like a mother. Mm-hmm. I was told, stop acting like a baby. You got yourself into this. You're about to have a baby. Shut up. Okay. Seriously. Seriously? Who needs that? <laughs> And that um, was that was coming from the doctor. That was coming. That was, from- that was from the nurse. And then I had another nurse later. You know, they were putting a catheter in me um, because the whole birthing process. Yeah. And I was squirming. I don't want anything up me. I'm sorry. I just don't. Sure. And she says, "Stop squirming. A hole is a hole. When I can't see one, I'm going to shove it up somewhere." Oh. Oh my God. <laughs> And I laugh about it now because it's funny now, not so funny oh my, back then. Not so funny for a terrified sixteen-year-old, like, like, d- d- despite despite your perspective on people's life choices. Good Christ! <laughs> like, right? There was no compassion. There was nothing but you know hostility towards me. Um, but looking back, I am so grateful. I'm grateful for that doctor slapping my ass with the chart. I'm grateful for the nurses yelling at me because in those moments, I knew that I wanted to do something different, that I wanted to provide a safe space for teenagers. Mm -hmm. And so back to your question, we got it. You know, we finally got to that question. Um, My passion for working with teenagers and young adults is because of my experiences, Mm -hmm. because I knew that, unfortunately, there are a lot of people who are incredibly judgmental and will not create that safe space for teenagers and young adults to seek help, you know, because we're learning about ourselves at that age. We have no clue. And if you get treated that way and you never come back and now, you know, four pregnancies later or 10 STDs later, that's not cool. Yeah. So that's what got me interested in working with this population. Now, obviously, your your experiences at that age were centered around like childbirth, like early, early on childbirth. Now the, the work that you've done since then, is that even further narrowed down? Like, is that still primarily the population that you like to focus on or the, that you like to work with? Or do you sort of broaden your focus to teens or young adults that have more, either more broad problems than just necessarily call it call it reproductive related issues like obviously obviously that's a huge source of angst for anybody in their teens but mm-hmm. put that aside do, is that is that exclusively the area of life that you prefer to focus on or do you focus on more than that now I focus on a lot more than that in my private practice I see people between 10 and however old they want to be mm-hmm. when they see me I love the teen populations the most but the bulk of my clients are actually adults. Got it. Now, going back to the teens, you know, um, the first part of my medical practice was really about reproductive health, is about helping teens not get pregnant, helping teens to prevent STDs and other consequences. Mm-hmm. But I kept on seeing a same pattern, and that is low confidence, low self-esteem equal risky sexual behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, because unfortunately, a lot of these girls they are lacking that self-esteem. They're lacking that love. So they're looking for it externally. Mm-hmm. And guys at that age, they know how to sweet talk. They know and how to say the right thing. <laughs> more, than, more than willing to try and help. Yeah, sure. <laughs> like guys at that right? age are more than willing to try and help. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you're not getting at home, if at home all you're doing is getting disciplined or getting yelled at or ignored, yeah. and then here's this guy who says, you know, I love you. You're the best thing ever. I'm going to take care of you. We're going to be together forever. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, if you have low confidence, you're going to fall for it really easily. Sure. So. I start shifting my focus on just helping girls build confidence. Mm -hmm. And then from there on, it just kept growing and growing. And, you know, I go back to the same thing, whether you're an adult or a teenager, it's really about confidence and Mm self-love. Because if you really walk around feeling so good about yourself and feeling so confident in who you are and your abilities, Mm -hmm. those mistakes that you would have made, you're not going to do yeah. You know, you see yourself different. You see yourself as worthy and you're going to push yourself to succeed higher and higher 
rather than being held back by low confidence. So that's my main focus with every client I see, no matter what they come in to see me for. Got it. Is there a is there a level of problem or a level of trauma that you work with with kids that sort of a top end limit? Like there here's why here's where I'm where I'm going with this. Uh, my wife and I recently watched a documentary that we came across on Amazon called Paper Tiger. Um, I don't know if you're familiar, but basically it's a it w- it was a documentary about a school. And I'm pretty sure it was somewhere in the Los Angeles area, but I could be completely screwing that up. But long and short of it was, is it was this, it was the stereotypical high school that you, that you hear about when anybody, when anybody whines about politics, when talking about, you know, public schools is it was the school with all of the bad kids that were all of the suspensions and expulsions and the druggies and the homeless kids and the, what like every seemingly reject of society was at was this was the school that those kids were funneled to. And it was, it was so bad that they brought in an, a new principal that was willing to try a different strategy with these kids that basically focused on the concept of toxic, what is called toxic trauma. And as that term was defined, at least by the way that term was defined in the documentary was the, the it's a certain level, certain types of trauma that are experienced by kids when they're at a younger age, put their like put their brain into a stage of fight or flight or like fight or flight self-defense survival that they just they're they're absolutely it's impossible for them to come out of it like they just can't come out of it they're they're constantly fighting they're constantly it's like they're constantly fighting they're constantly trying to survive i mean it's a survival it's survival mechanism like these kids are it's like they're promiscuous because they were getting the living crap beat out of them at home or they were getting sexually molested by their stepfather or their actual father or their, you know, just all, all of these stories, like one after the other, it's just, these are horrifying stories. And obviously these lead into different types of trauma. There's that level of trauma. And then, but then there's also multiple levels of trauma. Like is there, is there a level of trauma, trauma or angst or whatever it might be that you work with, with young adults, that's either too far advanced for your practice. Like, like when you get to that level, like, do you work with, do you work with young adults that have had issues at at that level? Or is that something that you say, refer out to a psychiatrist or, you know, somebody based out of the local hospital or whatever it is like how, where, where does, where does your practice, where does the line at your practice cut off either at the top end or the bottom end? Like, is that the kind of work that you do yourself or have you? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a great question. So there's multiple layers to that question. Sure. The The first question I'm going to answer I do, is, I do that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay. I will pick how I want to answer them. Yeah. <laughs> the, the first one is really about, you know, they're stuck, they're stuck there and they can't get out. Yeah. I call BS on that. Okay. So even with the most significant trauma, there are ways to help them to overcome it and not just to mask it or, or to deal with it, but mm-hmm. truly to overcome it and let go. And that works more at the subconscious mind level. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, you know, the high toxic level trauma. Yeah. We in um, the NLP world, neurolinguistic programming world, we call it significant emotional event. Okay. And whenever you experience a significant emotional event, we're going to talk about negative significant emotional events because that's what trauma is. When you experience a negative significant um, emotional event, whether it's something super traumatic like a rape or a murder, Mm -hmm. that is, you know, we all can say that's very traumatic. Sure, of course. But it could also be something like a little playground incident where you got rejected. If it is significant emotionally to you, it is significant. Yeah. So I don't label it at, you know, this is too much or too little. Yeah. A significant emotional event is a significant emotional event. And from that, your subconscious mind will create a lot of belief systems surrounding that surrounding that event and coping strategy. Mm-hmm. And it tends to be the same. The mind likes to cope by avoidance because if you avoid, guess what? You didn't put yourself at risk. Yep. So it would create fear 
for you to avoid things. So that's where a lot of people with anxiety and depression Mm -hmm. comes from is really about the subconscious mind replaying these things to keep you in fear so that you don't move forward and potentially put yourself at risk. Um, the other part is, you know, the end limit with my practice is someone who is pretty actively suicidal. It's definitely not a good client for okay. me. Okay. Um, or someone who is more of a, what word am I looking for? I totally lost my words. <laughs> I've been out of practice from the medical field now for nine years and I'm losing my medical words. <laughs> psychosis is what I'm going to. When you have psychosis, you know, for me to be able to work with you, you have to have a functioning mind. And if you don't have a functioning mind for whatever reason, I can't help you. Now, a person who is actively suicidal, if I can stay with that person, I can totally help them. Mm -hmm. But it's that risk of, you know, the in-between time they could do anything. I'm just not willing to take that risk on their lives. Sure. But I do get really excited when I have the higher risk clients, mm-hmm. um, you know, because those people, if they are ready, you can help them make so such significant changes so fast. Um, the end point, the, the uh, early cutoff you mentioned are the people that are just kicking the tires. Like, oh, I kind of don't want to deal with this, but I'm not motivated yet. Mm-hmm. Those clients are not my ideal clients because Mindset retraining is something that you have to actively want to do for yourself. Sure. And you have to be an active participant. And usually someone who is depressed and hopeless and they're ready to make a change, they are so involved and their change is like tremendous. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like it, it almost gets harkens back to the old uh you know, the the Alcoholics Anonymous thing. It's like, well, it's like do do you really want do you really want to quit, you know, whether it be drugs, alcohol, gambling, whatever the thing is. And if the motivation isn't there, odds are you just haven't hit as they all say, like you haven't hit rock bottom yet. You have right. it's like and what rock bottom is, I like what I like what you pointed out about how there's different levels of trauma. There's a significant emotional event that is that is what it is for the person that has experienced it. it. Like for some, for some people, they witnessed a murder. The next guy down the line was, you know, he was, in, he was an infantryman in the Marine Corps during a war. He, he witnesses a murder at home. He doesn't give a damn because he's seen a hundred, you know, he's seen 500 of them right in front of his face. That doesn't affect him. But right. It's not a significant emotional event for him anymore. Him, yeah. But for example, an unexpected car crash that kills his sister, that could be his triggering thing. Like where right. I, I, I like how you pointed out that, that out about how, you know, and if for people who are listening, like I want to kind of rehash that, that point, because that's. That's really important when we're t- when you're talking to people who have had quote unquote trauma or you know what we deem to be unfortunate things happening to them that it's all on a one to one level it's all a medicine sort of n of one sort of a situation you're like trauma trauma to me isn't trauma to Jackie isn't trauma to my wife Carrie isn't trauma to my friend Sean like th- there's like what trauma means and what could be significant what can significantly impact each of us varies widely based on our normal life experiences like if you grow if you grow up in the projects in the inner city where gunshots are happening every single day versus going you know to school in you know a private school in the suburbs out in the middle of nowhere you know a a significant quote unquote a significant emotional event is a dramatically different thing from one person to the next so uh, no, I, I, yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> no, I, I'm glad you kind of reiterate that because that is so important. Like when I work with parents, they would call me and you know, call me and they would be so confused. They're like, we provide everything, you know, little Susie has everything she needs and she have friends and we love her and she have toys and she have this. Why is she suffering? Why is she anxious? Why is she depressed? Because she has nothing to strive for anymore. <laughs> Good night. Anyway. Maybe, but you know, a lot of the cases are small little stories that yeah. in that moment, without all the information, with all the details, without the brain being fully developed, it becomes a different story in that child's mind. Yeah. And it becomes a significant emotional event. And, you know, like this particular one I'm talking about, her thing was, on the playground, she lost a game for her team, mm-hmm. right? To the parents, no big deal. It's a playground game. It's a game. So what? Sure. 
But for her, she let her friends down. Mm -hmm. She let herself down. She let her mother down. I mean, like it it just trickled down from something silly as a playground game. Mm -hmm. But in that moment, that's what it meant to her. And that's what she made that event to mean for her. And unfortunately, once you create a belief system about who you are as a person, it stays with you for the rest of your life. And your subconscious mind is constantly looking for evidence to prove that you are right about that belief system. Mm It's like, it's like, you're a screw up. See, you proved it when you were six. You proved it again when you were nine. And your face is like, see, look, you proved it again when you were 16. It's like, I just, one after the other, after the other. And it's, it's interesting. Um, just kind of get, getting back to the basis of this show about how sort of everything that happens to us isn't one, one single sort of a train wreck thing that happens like everything that happens to us is a is a slow rolling sequence of small events one after the next after the next the men- mentioning how earlier is like the difference in trauma to someone in this lifestyle versus li- this lifestyle it's in their brain in the ke- in, in the chemicals to the chemicals in their brain it's exactly the same thing you know see, seeing a car, you know seeing a car crash where someone loses a leg to somebody that's out in you know that lives out on a farm somewhere is exactly the same to watching somebody getting their head blown off right in front of them in the inner city like chemically in their brain that's the exact same thing and no matter how much you try and tell them well you know if if you were look it's like if you want to see real trauma you should see what life is like over in the woods <laughs> in africa i'm like it doesn't matter what it's like over there it matters what it's like in your world like the it's it's so funny because so much of that can be i think applied to sort of the political realm that we're we're in right now where if it, like and it's it's, it's like if, if you look at generation after generation every generation says that the next generation or their kids are like Oh my God! These these pa- these pansy ass little bastards! They don't they have no idea what real struggle is. They da, 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 you know it, that's no no offense to the previous generations, but that's your fault. <laughs> like when when like all it's like all I do is spend all my time you know busting my butt so that my kids can have everything and every advantage and every opportunity, and I'm like. That's why their life sucks. It's because that, like <laughs> when when it's like you had to walk, you know, you had to walk to school seven miles uphill both ways. You had to eat dirt, and you had to be thankful that you had to eat dirt. And my kids have all this money and all this stuff. I'm like, the human brain needs struggle, and it, the human brain needs struggle. And if it doesn't have some form of struggle that a proactive or useful struggle, it's gonna kind of find it wherever it's available. So a friend of mine not keeping my 360 day, you know, snap streak, whatever the hell it is on Snapchat is like, if somebody breaks that 360 day streak, that's a traumatic event for somebody that's f- <laughs> so for someone that's 15 years old right now. Right. If that's meaningful for them. I'm 37 years old. I look at that. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? That that's, you know, it's like, do you have any idea what really matters in life? But here, here I am starting to talk like the talk, like the older generations, you goddamn kids don't know what you're talking uh-huh. about. But it's true. Like, tra- like trauma, tra- like, you we we are our environment if you grow if you grow up in the western world versus growing up in the middle of the jungle in the congo what is trauma to you is different if you grow up in you know if you grow up in malibu versus grow, growing up in the backwoods of west virginia where there's an opioid epidemic what's trauma to you is a diff, is a completely different thing but it affects your brain the same way Right. And that's why I like the word um, significant emotional events better than trauma. Mm-hmm. Because the moment you see you say trauma, people have an idea of yeah. what that should be. Yeah. Murder, right. attack, rape. Right. Just right. like the biggies. Yeah. But when you think about it as a significant emotional event for the individual, mm-hmm. there's a lot more room right there to play with. Sure. Sure. Now, the the one of the books that you that you initially released back in 2015 was focused on teenagers. Tell, t- tell me a little bit about that book. Uh, when I, I'm I'm biased because my wife, being a special ed certified, you know, private tutor, when I was showing her the uh, 
when I was fl- flipping through your website and obviously kind of bouncing some of it past her, she saw the title of that book and she was like, oh my God, <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. I want to read that book. Like, what, what, what's sort of the, the basis behind that, that book, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, sure. So first off, um, all of my books are for teenagers. It's in a series called The Words of Wisdom for Teens. Okay. And there are three books total. The one that you're talking about is the second book of the series and it's called I Would but my damn mind won't let me. (laughs) (laughs) That title's get a lot of giggles and it gets some negative uh, feedback from parents too. Who's like, you know, why are you using that negative word? And da, 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 da. And my answer is because they're using it. (laughs) Exactly. Because that title of my book was given to me by my clients. You know, I would ask them like, you know, you you have these goals, you have these plans and you're telling me you're going to do this and that. What prevents you from doing it? And I would hear some sort of combination of my damn mind won't let me. Yeah, my brain, and my kept, mind, my whatever. Yeah. Yes. And, and the word my damn mind came up actually quite often. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I was starting to, I, I never wanted to be an author. Mm. I, you know, like English is my second language, grammars and all of that stuff. They're not friends of mine. Mm. And so I never thought about being a writer. But as I'm teaching these content to my clients, they would all say the same thing. Can you write it down? Can you write it down? <laughs> There's so much information. Can you please give me a summary? And after hearing it enough times, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to write a summary. And the summary became a couple chapters and then it became a book. And so now that I have this book, I'm like, what am I going to call it? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I start hearing those words again. I'm like, oh, duh, you know. Yeah. And so that's how the book came about. And the book really is about, it's a primer for your mind. Mm-hmm. It's how your mind works to create the experiences that you have. And once you understand how your mind works, then you can also command your mind Mm -hmm. to give you the experiences that you're looking for. Got it. That's um, the interesting transition point there. Speaking of the getting it to uh, do the things that you're looking for, the one of the things that you and I sort of connected about when, when we first, um, when we first connected on Facebook was your RV lifestyle. Uh-huh. Like I like for, for anybody that's listening, you guys obviously know that my wife and I are planning on moving into an RV. The something that I noticed about Jackie was part, part-time RV RV tripper. I think is the, was the term like part-time RV Our- tripper. RV tripper, <laughs> RV, RV tripper. We're like hopefully hoping to try and go full time if we can, you know, convince your husband to do so. Which, if I can help, let me know. Anyway, <laughs> the uh, w- what um, with obvi- obviously the stuff that you went through early on, manifesting to from according to your website, a relatively decent young man. Uh, um, he's an amazing like, young man. Like that. Oh my gosh, he's one of my best friends. He's amazing. That's awesome. Now, out of, out of goofy curiosity, has, has he expressed any interest in the traveling lifestyle of these crazy RV people like you and I are trying to become? No, no. Right, he got married um, last year, oh, so there, he, there goes, he's doing this. All hope. <laughs> <laughs> no, his wife is beautiful inside out. I could not have like made a better wife for him <laughs> as if I had a choice. Right. But she's amazing. Mm-hmm. But no, um, he's looking to have his own family and my son. I don't know where he gets it from. He is so systematic uh, and responsible. <laughs> uh, I jump in first and I figure out the how later I get excited. I do it. And I sure. always figure it out as I go. My son is a planner. He's like, okay. So when he got engaged, he's like, I need two years because I need to clean up my credit and then I need to save up for the wedding. And he did that. Mm -hmm. And now that he's been married for coming on uh, a year, he's doing the same thing. He's like, we're ready to have children in about two years because we have to buy our house and all that first. So he's about establishing roots right now. God, he's an engineer, isn't he? (laughs) No, he's not. He actually is a marketer. He works for Amazon in the marketing department. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now I I wonder how, how much of that, how much of that is the, is the table that you set when he was a kid? Cause it sounds like I I always, I've always wondered about that. It's a chicken, it's a chicken or the egg situation for me. (laughs) Like I've never really understood. It's like, is someone naturally, sort of a jump in and like you said, how you are, you're jump in and figure it out and figure out the how later versus him. He's a very like engaged, very engaged, thoughtful, systematic planner. Well, hmm, you were, you, know, you, I, you were a, you were a single parent at 16. 
you couldn't really sit down with a chart and a clipboard and a checklist and try to figure, figure shit out. Like it was like, Oh my God, how am I going to survive? And that's, that's (laughs) so naturally that's how you are. I wonder, were you like that before, you know, were you like that before that time frame, or did that sort of change? Did that event color that in you? Like, were you maybe a little bit more systematic like him beforehand? And then you're like, yeah. you know what? Don't have time to figure this shit out. Let's just get like, we got to go, you know, whereas with him, yeah. he didn't have a similar sort of event like that. So maybe he can let his natural way of being be. I love that question so much. And that question's reminded me of who I really was. I've forgotten that for a while. And then this question is bring it all full circle. So thank you for that. He's actually the young Jackie. Because when I was a teenager and the early 20s, I was very systematic. Mm. I mean, I was a nurse practitioner. I went from a te- – I dropped out of high school mm. in the first semester of 10th grade, getting mm. my GED, completing my master by the time I was 23 years old. Mm. I was pretty darn system uh, systematic back then. Sure. And I had a goal and I had plans. And I forgot about that part of Jackie. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> But what mm. happened was my grandmother passed away maybe 12 years ago. Mm. Okay. And I, that was another big catalyst for me to say, you know what? Grandmother didn't live. She didn't have this wonderful life. She served and she served her husband and she served her son, mm. but she didn't really live life. And so when my mother, my grandmother passed, it triggered something in me that I just have to bring life into everything I do. I have to be passionate about it. I have to live every single moment. And that's when I think, I jumped in and I figure things out, but I do have that systematic part of me that I've forgotten. <laughs> you you mentioned your grandmother, right? Something that you said earlier about English not being your second, not being your first language. What is your first language? I'm Vietnamese. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Now, were you were you born in Vietnam and then came here, or did you just grow up in a Vietnam household here in the U.S.? Oh, no, no, no. I was a boat person. I We did the whole. <laughs> you were a boat person. <laughs> hey, that's what we were called. And that's that's part of the growing up in the Depression, too, right? Being I was born in Vietnam and then we escaped our country mm. while being shot at. There were deaths along mm. the way. There were lots of different significant trauma. Mm. Uh, I'm not even calling those significant emotional events. Those are significant that's trauma. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's like and, bu- it was like bullets blowing up bodies death. That's trauma. Okay, got it. <laughs> Moving well, on. If, just well just imagine this, right? In the middle of the night, you're escaping and you know you're doing something that is, you know, they can shoot you on sight. Mm-hmm. And so we're swimming from the dock to a canoe and then we're going to canoe to the escape boat. Mm-hmm. And I must have been maybe 7 at the time. So my mother was swimming with me under one arm. My little sister was sitting on her neck and she's using the other arm to paddle. My My older brother and my older sister is swimming nearby and we're being shot at. So you, you hear people yelling and screaming, you know, in the pitch dark of the night, you hear mother screaming, you hear children crying. That is a significant traumatic event. How, how old were you when this, when this was happening? Between seven and eight years old. And that's during the time that you create belief system, you know, up until seven, eight ish is when the majority of who you are was formed. And of course, I got a lot of belief system of the world's not safe. Yeah. Can't imagine why. (laughs) I mean, not, 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 not to, not to, not to date yourself. It was like not, not to intentionally date yourself anyway, but like when, when was this, like what was going on in Vietnam? Like what, when was this happening? So that was um, a few years after the war. So Vietnam fell in 75. Mm. I believe that was 80. Okay. Yeah, that would be that would be 80 because I would be eight that at that time. Got it. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, the that 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 period was interesting. So I hear like so it was like so I hear that that time frame was interesting for anybody that was trying to get out of get out of Vietnam post war. Right. And then, of course, you know, we came to America and it was all about different culture, different language, different everything Mm -hmm. and not understanding any of that. There's a lot of what's wrong with me. Why am I not good enough? Why don't I fit in? A lot of those beliefs got created back then that led to my anxiety and depression. How how was how was your at grade school level, I guess, like how was your reception to the American culture at the time? Because obviously. Vietnam War wasn't hadn't been over very long, and you know the 
generally speaking, opinion of Vietnamese wasn't probably all that high in the U.S. at the time, especially that soon after the war. Like, did you did you experience much in the way of did you experience much in the way of, I guess, who's like hatred or like even if it's just, you know, people saying, nah, let's not let's not play with her. Like, you know, hey, she's Vietnamese. Did you know? She was, it's, like, it's like, don't tell your like it's, it's like Jackie's coming over to play. Don't tell your father she's Vietnamese. <laughs> It's like, it's like, say, it's like, say, it's like, say she's from the Philippines. Don't say Vietnamese. Or like, did you, did you experience any of that yourself or? Not to that level. Thank um, God. Thank a God. whole lot of, a whole lot of teasing. Sure. Um, you know, teasing about my eyes, about my accent, about my name. My name is not Jackie. I wasn't born Jackie. I would imagine. It's like, so ja- like Jackie wasn't like in the top <laughs> of uh, babynames.com in Vietnam, Vietnam no. back in the early 70s? No? Oh, no. Okay. So my, my Vietnamese name is is Hong and kids get really creative, right? It's Hong Kong and King Kong. So of course, yeah. I, I would walk into class and I would hear this chant, you know, um, Hong Kong is playing with King Kong's ding dong. <laughs> and it's, it's super silly now, but in that moment, again, it's the, I'm different. Sure. What's wrong with me? Why can't I have those big, beautiful blue eyes? Mm-hmm. You know, why is my eyes squ- uh, squinty and slanty mm-hmm. and my it's hair, like, yeah, you know? What, what's that black, what's that black stuff on your head? It's just, exactly. that's my hair. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah. So, so all of that definitely created, you know, a lot of, uh, negative belief systems. So like I tell people all the time, like, you know, growing up, Mm. it wasn't that horrible. Like, Mm. you know, I was never, there was no molestation. There was no rape. There was no, those kind of trauma, Mm. but just the fact that I always felt like an outsider was my trauma. Yeah. Now for, for people that are listening, just, just, dive in dive into that topic for a second if you don't mind like that that's it in the wonderful age of social media that we're living in now we we see we're supposed to be so much more connected and so much more so more so much more easily able to find people like us on using the using you know sort of platforms of social media but as i'm sure you know everybody's not unfamiliar with right now, that's starting to cause us to have very sort of siloed relationships where, you know, it's like, for example, like Facebook, it does its thing. It's like, Hey, you can find people like you can find people all over the world that are just like you that are into all the same things that you're into. And that sounds wonderful. But now all you see and all you know are the people that are around you that look, smell, feel, touch, and act exactly like you. And now it's almost like when you encounter somebody that's got a different opinion or that's from a different country or that has a different perspective on something, it's it's almost like they're the other. It's like you're not, you know, you're not American anymore. You're not just a woman anymore. You're one of them like because you're not in my little you're not in my facebook group so like you're not in my facebook group that looks like me and talks like me and thinks like me and feels like me and whatever like i i'm i'm wondering if that similar sort of a trauma to what you try like i keep going back to trauma i apologize it's just it's ingrained i'm sorry maybe it's a maybe it's a freudian slip that you and i need to talk about after we go off <laughs> but anyway so i mean the 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 what you went through having those feelings when you were a kid i wonder if that's similar even unspoken of what younger people are going through is with social media today which is we're so siloed in our gr- in our groups on social media that we feel alienated by the people that are around us because they're not really like us which is funny cuz they never like the people around us never were like us it's just that when we didn't have an escape hatch to get to our mirror images online all over the world, we actually had to, to borrow a phrase from a little sign that's hanging in my mother-in-law's kitchen. We kind of had to put our big girl panties on and deal with it back then. Whereas now, <laughs> you know, we haven't needed to do that in a while. We have, For like the last 10 years, we haven't really needed to just buckle down and figure out how to live with 
that person over there that looks and smells weird or this person over here that's constantly ranting about politics or whatever it is. Like before that, you kind of had to deal with it. It's like, hey, they're here. This is my life. This is where I live. Like, I wonder, I mean, can you draw any comparisons from, I guess, the young people that you work with, that you've worked with sort of living in the age of social media where we curate our friends very much, you know, like how it was when you were a kid. It's like, well, it was all like the little blonde hair, blue eyed girls and me, (laughs) you know, it's like, I is like, do you, can you draw any similarities between those two? Maybe not quite the way that you're asking. Um, but you know, my belief and what I teach my clients is that we are more similar than we are different. Mm -hmm. However, we're trained to look for differences, right? We're trained to look for differences. So the moment you see something different or you see something you want that you don't have that lack all of a sudden all of your attention focused there Mm. but if you start to intentionally look for similarities Mm. there are so much more similarities and when you everywhere right i don't i don't care who you are i can compare you to anybody and find a bunch of similarities and which one would benefit you more feeling like you're similar and a part of something or feeling so separated Mm -hmm. And so rather than really, you know, looking at they and them, Mm -hmm. I really try to myself and my clients to recognize that, you know what, we are all here on a journey and we get to decide what that journey looks like for us. If there's something we want, let's figure out how to get there rather than looking at the things we don't have or the thing that's going wrong. Let's focus on what we could make right for ourselves. Mm -hmm. That way we don't have to worry so much about the separation that you mentioned. Yeah. Now for, so for, for anybody that's listening, if they're, if they're dealing with knowingly or otherwise, or have people in their lives that are, that are knowingly or otherwise kind of dealing with some of these significant emotional traumas, whether it be social media related or otherwise, um, it's like that, the, the social media phenomenon of that has been sort of a whipping boy for me for a while, just cause it's something that I, that I see and that it just bothers me so much. But for, for people that are, that have people in their lives that are dealing with this kind of trauma, like what, what are some steps that we can do to either breach the topic at all in the first place, which is really the hardest part for a lot of people, like what what's what are the first steps to dealing with situations like this like who and you know like i mentioned earlier it's like it's not all you know big bold broad strokes like it sometimes it's making sh- making sure the th- like the this child was traumatized by whether it be a gunshot and it's like hey Let's make let's make sure there's no like loud banging alarms going on in the house like, or whatever whatever it is like what, for for people that have gone through this type of stuff like what are some early steps that people can do to start helping I guess so I think the, the most important thing that anybody can do in any situation is really recognize what you have control of and what you don't. Mm-hmm. Most of us, we focus so hard on doing things that we have no control of, right? Mm-hmm. Social media is great. It's a great example. It's like we see all of these negativities and we see all of these people that have so much more than we do and we feel all sorts of negative way. Mm-hmm. And then we try to control things that we don't have. We try to present ourselves in a different light, trying to fit in and all of that. Mm-hmm. But what if you, instead of trying to control the external, you went inward and start controlling what you do, in fact, have control of, which Mm -hmm. is your mindset? Mm -hmm. You can change how you view situations by the words that you use when you talk. So if you're looking at somebody or you're looking at a situation like the shooting in Florida is a Mm -hmm. great example, right? 